Good morning, Lighthouse Community Church. How's everybody doing today? Good, I hope. We're doing really good, and there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that you wouldn't even know this morning, so let me share one of them with you. This morning, we had our very first Zoom prayer before the service, and if you guys don't know, this is a praying church, and uh, the elders are still meeting on Wednesday to pray for all your prayer requests, although you guys have slowed down a little. It'd be nice if you kicked out some prayer requests. We'd like to pray for you. But this morning, we had a Ken Kunkel and a group of Wendy and Cheryl and a bunch of them joined together. So any of you out there watching, if you'd like to join the Sunday morning prayer group, just uh, send us the thing at Pastors at Lighthouse Community. Say you'd like to join the Sunday morning Zoom prayer meeting, and we would greatly appreciate it. We know that there's certain things that can only happen through the power of prayer. And so this morning, we know some walls have already come down through the power of prayer. That's exciting news. Additionally, this morning, we're going to take away that nasty stigma about driving through a parking lot and having a bunch of pain. I don't know if you've had the privilege of doing a COVID test. Uh, It's not that enjoyable, but today we'd like to do something enjoyable with the after church service right here in the parking lot. We're going to have a set up for a communion and it's drive through communion. And we look forward to hanging out with you. Pastor Eric and myself are going to be out there praying with everybody. Don will be out there trying to help us organize it. So if you have time at the end of the service, we'll be here for a while. Uh, Don't be in any hurry, but we are looking forward to celebrating communion with you this morning in the best way that we can. Of course, we'll be in safety gear and and everything will be individually packaged. We'll do everything we can to make it absolutely uh, safe and sane. Uh, forget Fourth of July. Safe and sane communion. <laughs> we'll make it work. Hey, would you join with me in prayer this morning as we thank God for the opportunity to worship him this, this day? Father God, we thank you for what is another wonderful opportunity to see your hand. And just, and just how you've opened some things up. The opportunity for some people to get together this morning and pray before the service. Uh, that's just exciting for me. I know that walls have come down with prayer. I know that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to, to be listening to our hearts as we walk through this very difficult and unique time. But we also know, Father, that you're taking this word out and it's going to places that it could have never gone before. It's reaching people that it would have never reached before. So may it continue to do what you intended it to do for the good of the kingdom of God that somebody may know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Lighthouse. It's really good to be with you both. A couple of you in here, but mainly at home. And we miss you. Looking forward to seeing many of you at that uh, drive-through communion later today. But if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. We are going to be studying Well, over the last couple of months, we've actually zeroed in on one person in particular. We've been following Paul as he traveled from his little house church in Antioch further and further into kind of the the wide world to share the gospel. He did so with Jews and Gentiles alike. And the thing that I've noticed that can sometimes be difficult for us to wrap our mind around is that uh, very large periods of time, months and years can be condensed down sometimes into a a single verse. You know, Paul spent three years in this place. Paul spent a year and a half teaching and, and whatnot there. And when we condense it down like that, it can begin to feel like Paul is... Uh, one of those big tent revivalists who is going from town to town. He shows up on a Tuesday, finds a place to be able to preach, and hits it hard for two or three days, and then he moves on to the next town on Friday. 
And what we would fail to, to understand if we viewed it that way is that that's not how Paul operated. Now, granted, there were a couple of places he would go that he experienced such strong pushback that he very quickly moved on. That happened because there was a lot of persecution that was happening. But more often than not, the places where Paul experienced the greatest amount of fruit were those places where he would go and invest himself for a long period of time, months, even sometimes years. Um, and, and this is because Paul wasn't just trying to make converts. He was really looking to make disciples. And making disciples is more than just scattering the seeds of the gospel. Making disciples requires two things, time and relationship. And Paul was very intentional about both of those things. We see him spend a year and a half in Corinth. We see him spend three years in Ephesus, in this very pagan city in Asia. And today, what we're going we're gonna to kind of skip over a portion where Paul takes a third missionary journey and he goes back and he visits many of the churches that he'd already planted in cities where he had already visited. Because it wasn't just a one-time go, scatter some seed, and, and go on to the next place. He was going to encourage, to give direction to, continue to have relationship. And now as we come to the end of his third missionary journey, Paul has his sights set on Jerusalem. His plan is to go there and to continue to be used by God. He just feels that the Holy Spirit is leading them there. But he also recognizes that he probably isn't going to be back this way. And although he doesn't want to get bogged down in Ephesus, he doesn't want to go back into that place because he knows he'll end up staying a really long time and instead he wants to kind of get to Jerusalem, he still wants to connect one last time with the Ephesian elders, the people who are charged with the care of the church. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. In Acts chapter 20, verse 16, we read, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Remember, the church had been planted at that time. He had, the, the church, kind of when the Holy Spirit came, it happened on Pentecost. He's hoping to get back there by the time that the church's birthday rolls around. But he still wants to connect. So from Miletus, a town that's about 20 miles away from Ephesus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, who were these people? The elders were simply those who had probably been some of the first people to give their hearts to Jesus. They are people that the roots of their faith went really, really deep. They were people whose lives began to produce fruit in keeping with their declaration that Jesus was their Lord and Savior. And so when Paul moved on, he entrusted the oversight of the church, this small community of believers, to these men and women. And so now he's saying to the elders of Ephesus, I want you to come. And I want to talk to you. I want to encourage you. And, you know, probably couples are showing up and, and a whole group of people show up there. And then he says in verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, you guys know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Remember, although Paul was trying to take ground from in, you know, Asia, especially in Ephesus, was a very pagan city. More often than not, he experienced the greatest amount of pushback from people within Judaism, people who should have gotten it, but they would often resist because Paul's understanding of who the Messiah was looked very different from who they were expecting. And, and Paul obviously took this to heart. One of the things that I tend to forget when I read about Paul and some of the other disciples is how much this impacted them. 
that they had feelings in the midst of it. I, I, I know that when I feel rejection, when I feel people pushing back, when I feel people actively working against me, it, it does something viscerally in me. When I feel pushback, particularly from people that I would expect to be supportive of something, that hurts the most. And so I know that Paul really felt deeply about what he had experienced on his missionary journeys. I don't want to sugarcoat that as if it was all great and he just never wavered in his resolve and he never felt anything. This was a human being experiencing rejection, experiencing persecution, and yet he did not waver in his dedication to doing it, even though it was hard. He, says, he goes on in verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. So it wasn't just me going out into the marketplace and declaring the gospel. It wasn't just me going into the synagogue and declaring the gospel. It was me going and gathering with a life group in people's homes and sharing with you, even one-on-one, investing in you. I have declared both to Jews and to Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance And have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I have no idea what was happening. But I do know that in every city that the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My own aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, the thing that I really appreciate about Paul, he, he sounds so similar to Jesus in his mindset. No, he doesn't want to die. No, he doesn't want to be imprisoned. No, he doesn't want to experience persecution. And yet, he is so focused on the task that God has given him that he reveres God enough, or he, he, he respects and is willing to submit to God more than he fears the pushback of people. And so even though he anticipates that this will be very trying, that it could end similarly to how it ended for Jesus when he went into Jerusalem, Paul is willing to go anyway. And what this does for me, just stepping back for just a moment, what this reminds me of is that Paul had a much bigger worldview than I tend to carry around with me and many of us carry around with us. Because although we recognize that this world, as it is, is not our home, we are aliens and strangers living in a country, in a land that is not our primary citizenship. We're citizens of the kingdom of God if we have Jesus in our heart. Our king, our ruler, is not the current administration. Our king and our ruler is our creator. And yet... Even though I know that intellectually, when, it, when the rubber meets the road in my life, I tend to look at my circumstances as if this life is all there is, as if my momentary comfort is the most important part of what I have to worry about. And so I find that oftentimes my prayers are, are out of the soil of my circumstances. In some ways, it's almost like if I were to take my kids wanting to take them to Disneyland, right? But when we get to downtown Disney, they have become so enamored with that place and all of the shops and all the plush toys and all of the other things that are there that all they want to do is stay in the gift shop in downtown Disney. And I'm going, guys, remember, this isn't it. And, and I'm like, hey, Grayson, come on, we got to go. No, I need this toy, as if that little stuffed whatever 
can, can even compete slightly with just getting through the gates and seeing the real thing. Because downtown Disney is a pale second to Disneyland. And in the same way, this life as we experience it, even though it can feel like it's everything, it's just a momentary blip in the grand scheme of eternity. And we already know how this ends. We know that we have eternity with our Father to look forward to. With a renewed earth where there's no more pain, no more death, no more brokenness, no more separation from God. That is what we have to look forward to. So why are we getting so fixated on our momentary circumstances as uncomfortable as they are? Paul got this, which is why even though he doesn't want to suffer, he is still willing to push forward because his ability to share the gospel, that is what God has called him to do. That is what he's going to do, irrespective of the cost to him personally. And so he continues on, verse 25. Now I know that none of you amongst whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Paul anticipates he'll never pass through this region again. And so he says, therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, that sounds very strange to our 21st century ears, that I am innocent of the blood of anyone. I mean, has he killed somebody? No. What he's talking about, though, is he's referencing a, a, an ancient Old Testament prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 33. And we're going to throw the, the words up on the screen in just a moment. But here is what he's referencing. In Ezekiel 33, God points to the prophet Ezekiel, and he uses the metaphor of a watchman sitting in a watchtower or sitting on a wall. And he says, you are a watchman who's watching for danger while the rest of the city sleeps. And when you see danger, your job is to sound an alarm, to wake people up, to blow your trumpet. That's your whole job. It's not to actually go and fight the enemy so that everybody can sleep. It's to let people know that danger exists. And if you do that, then if anything happens to the people in the city, while they die, the blood, your, their blood will not be on your hands. But if you fail to do so, either because you were distracted or because you just didn't want to wake people up and they die, then their blood will be on your hands. And then he takes that metaphor of a watchman on the wall and he points to Ezekiel and says, in a spiritual sense, this is what you are to my people. This is Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 7. He says, son of man. I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you don't speak out to dissuade them from their ways, then that wicked person will die for their sin, but I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they don't do so, then they will die for their sins, though you yourself will be saved. You will not be held accountable for their blood. What Paul, or I'm sorry, what God was saying to Ezekiel is that as a watchman over his people Israel, he had a job to do. 
It wasn't just to preserve himself. It was to protect the people of God living in, a, in an environment that was hostile to them. But a couple of things that we need to recognize. One is that the watchman's job is not to simply warn everybody about everything that they're concerned about, right? The watchman can't just say, hey, you need to vote this way, and hey, you need to live this way, and hey, you really need to go green, and hey, you really need to eat organic. You know, you should really try this sort of diet or whatever. That's not what a watchman's job is, is to just try to make everybody live the way that the watchman lives. The watchman's job is to wait until they see danger. And, when the, and from a spiritual standpoint, how do you know it's danger that needs to be spoken? Because God puts the words on their heart. A prophet is simply somebody who speaks the words of God. And I've had to grapple with this because I have during this time been really leaning into writing devotionals and things that I email out or even as we get into messages, like what am I going to say to my family? And I've had a lot of people who say, hey, you really should talk about this, or hey, you should mention this. And I keep finding myself going, hey, if God places that on my heart for our our church community, then I will write about it. But until that time, I'm not going to, because at the end of the day, what you don't need is my wisdom. My job is not to simply say whatever it is that I think. My job is to listen for our Father to say something for us and then to share it. And if I don't hear anything... I should probably keep my mouth shut. The second thing we need to recognize is that it is never the watchman's job to save everybody in the city. Although the actions of warning them might do that, right? If you warn the city that danger is coming, if you wake people up, you probably will, it will probably result in many people being saved. However, we cannot force people to respond in the way that we would want to our warnings. And may I confess, as a parent right now, this is becoming more and more real to me. I've got an 8-year-old and I've got a 12-year-old. I'm going to zero in on my 12-year-old because he's getting to that age right now where we, his mom and I, are recognizing that we can't make every decision for him. We can't walk him across every intersection, although we want to. We can't protect him from the world. We can't protect him from all of his choices. All we can do, and I, and I know, by the way, because I talk to other parents who have children who are older, that it only becomes more accentuated at the fact that we cannot rescue our children. When they were younger, when they were babies, that was our job, to protect them from everything. As they get older, we can't protect them from everything. All we can do, as those who have walked this path before, is give warning. And ultimately then how they choose to respond is on them. And that's part of becoming an adult, leaving childhood and and, and taking greater responsibility for themselves. It's really, really hard because I want to make all the decisions for my kid. But if I did that, I'd leave them emotionally emaciated. They, they They would stay children. And so it's a hard balance to find. But what we need to remember from a spiritual standpoint is we cannot save anybody. We cannot force our faith onto another person. We can't make them repent and turn to Jesus and grab hold of him and say, I'm going to follow you with all of my being. We can't do it as much as we want to. As much as we have tasted and seen that he is real, we can't force our faith upon another person. All we can do 
is we can give voice to our faith through the way we live and through our words. And while Ezekiel was being commissioned by God to be a watchman over the people of Israel, Paul points back to that and says, I have been a watchman for this church community, this little church community that I helped plant here in Ephesus. For three years, I've been the one who has overseen this. I've been the one who's helped give direction. I've been the one who's helped disciple you. At first, I was the one telling you exactly how you should live. And as you became more mature in your faith, I stepped back and I simply gave encouragement. And now I recognize that for many of you, we are becoming more peer level as opposed to me telling you what to do. Even for those elders there, he has now elevated them to the role that he had filled in that city. And so he says, I have done what God has laid on my heart to do. I have given you warning for three years. And now he points to these elders and and he commissions them to the same task that he has fulfilled for the last three years. Let's keep reading here. He says in verse 27, I have not, actually we'll back up to verse 26. He says, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. Why? Because I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Not just the parts that are fun. Not just the parts about how God loves you and wants relationship with you and will forgive your sins. Not those parts. But not just those parts. Because that's a partial gospel. But the whole gospel. The part about taking up your cross, dying to yourself daily, following him. That in order to live, you have to die to yourself. Those are parts that are harder to hear. But that is the whole gospel. The fact that when we say yes to following him, that's not just a momentary decision that we make one time. That is a lifetime decision. And that initial prayer of acceptance is the starting line, not the finish line. The fact that in this world we're going to have trouble, that we're not protected. If Jesus suffered and was persecuted, he said, you guys are going to suffer and be persecuted for your faith as well. That's a part of the gospel we need to acknowledge. And that we cannot live for ourselves. Greater is he, you know, that the the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. That goes so countercultural to the way that our world works, where we think that the greater you become, the more people you have to serve you. It's like, no, the higher you climb, the more people under you you need to care for. It's almost like you're climbing a ladder down to get under people that you can lift up. That is what it means to be a Christ follower, to, to live your life as his representative. So I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, the whole gospel. And now he looks at these men and women that he is commissioning to the role of watching over. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's two things that he says to them. One, keep watch over yourself. Because you are going to be tempted. The enemy will try to trip you up. The enemy will try to steer you in a direction that is incredibly damaging, not just to yourself, but to people around you. If you hope to be a support to others, then you need to look at the foundation of your own faith. Because if your own relationship with God wavers, then you have nothing to offer other people. You won't have the strength spiritually to hold others up when you yourself are wavering. So as overseers, we must first watch our own life. And then we need to 
to have eyes to watch the, the lives of those around us that God has placed under our care out of love, not out of a desire to kind of be domineering or to get our way. So keep watch over yourselves and all the flock by which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Remember, this church, this beautiful, diverse, messy community, it's not yours. It belongs to our Father. He is the true owner. You are simply a shepherd. So you can't just make any decisions that you want to, to benefit yourself. There's shepherds in the Old Testament that are talked about that are false shepherds who simply use the flock for their own benefit. And Paul says, don't be that kind of shepherd. Because this, this church, this community belongs to God. And he warns them that there is going to come a time when people, wolves, will come in and try to tear apart the church, he says in verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Because remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. I have acted as a watchman. I mean, I mean encouraging you to live as watchmen because there will come people who will try to steer the church towards their own ends. Who will come in with theological bents to say, this is what matters most. We need to live this way. We need to run after these things. And this is why in Paul's letters, half of the New Testament are letters that Paul wrote. Two churches that he helped plant, other than Romans, which is a church that he was reaching out to, saying, hey, I'm coming. Every other one was written to one of the churches he helped plant or one of the people that he has sent out, like Timothy. Timothy was left in Ephesus to be a leader of the church, even though he was young. God even uses young people. And he writes to Timothy, recognizing that this has happened, this warning that he gave the elders in Ephesus, that wolves will come in looking to steer the church and, and, and pull people off that they can kind of use to their own ends. This is happening. People within the church are beginning to get fixated on things that are absolutely pulling the church apart at the seams. And he's saying, be careful, be cautious. That's what those letters are written to address. Now, he continues on with the elders, but I want to stop there. Because I feel like we've bitten off enough this morning for us to chew on. Because as much as Paul identifies with Ezekiel as an overseer, as a watchman, looking over and caring for the, the well-being of the church, I recognize that there are some of us within Lighthouse who have been entrusted with that role, both Jeff and myself, as well as we have a board of elders men and their wives who we have looked at and said, you guys reflect a maturity, right? It, you're not, they're not perfect. I will be the first to say, I'm not perfect. Jeff would say the same thing. We're not perfect people. If you're looking for perfection, just look to Jesus. But we're people who have said, we trust Jesus. We look at the fruit of our lives. We're saying we're following him to the best of our ability. And we have accepted the responsibility of care and oversight of our church. And that means both watching our own lives and our own walks, as well as caring for the church. And I'll admit that this season in particular, these last four months, that responsibility has gotten heavy because we live in a time that is unprecedented in my lifetime. 
There is so many competing opinions of what the church should do. So many competing and conflicting bits of information that are coming in. So many people who are telling us, here's what you guys should do right now. And please know we do not take any of this lightly. The decisions that we make, we make with tremendous amount of prayer and forethought. Because at the end of the day, we recognize this isn't our church. This community of believers, scattered as we are across our county, It's not my church or Jeff's church. This is our father's church. We get the right to help lead it. And so we will have to give an answer for the way we do that. And guys, I want you to know we miss you tremendously. We look forward to the day that we can all gather in this place together with masks off, worshiping God like we used to. It'll come. It will come. But in the meantime, I want you to know that we cannot make decisions that simply benefit us as those who call Lighthouse home. Because at the end of the day, God has not called the church to exist solely for its own benefit. He has called the church to be the church in a world that is desperately in need of hope. So the decisions that we make have to balance what is best for our church community with what is best for our witness, for those who are outside of the church. And sometimes that looks like limiting our freedoms and our rights, so that we can focus on our witness. But that's also where we get to get creative, and that's why we're doing communion after church today in a drive through fashion, because we want to see you, and we want to just snatch any opportunities for community, and we're going to do that today, which is why we're encouraging many of you to get into life groups and to start gathering on Sundays in people's homes, because that's something we can do. So if you are hungry to connect with others, and maybe even worship in someone's home, just write to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. Let us know you want to get plugged into one of those house churches, and we will make sure you do, so that you can start worshiping on Sunday together with others until we can be back in here. So that's the first thing, is that we recognize as pastors and elders that we have a responsibility. But we're not the only overseers of our, in our church community. Because the truth of the matter is, every single one of us who has Jesus in our heart who has tasted and seen that he is good, who has the light of life, has a responsibility to live as a watchman and to help those who have not seen, to help those who are stumbling around in the darkness. And this especially goes for those in our sphere of influence. Parents, grandparents, you have a responsibility as a watchman over your family and even over your extended family. And I know it takes a lot of prayer. As a parent, I get this. It takes a tremendous amount of prayer. It's exhausting at times. Trying to figure out how best to love our children and give direction, especially when we know that they may make different decisions than what we would want. But may we never shirk the responsibility of giving voice of warning to those who are perishing, those who are wandering off. Not simply out of a good conscience, but because we don't want their blood spiritually to be on our hands. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want to I share a video that I've shared here before, but it's powerful enough that it's worth seeing again for those of you ha- who have seen it. There's a guy, Penn Gillette, who's the vocal part of the magic group Penn and & Teller. And during one of his 
uh, video blogs that he did after a show, he shared some thoughts on a man who brought him a Bible and shared the gospel with him. I'm just going to go ahead and let Penn tell you what he feels about all of this as an avowed atheist. Let's go ahead and watch. Thankfully, thankfully, I, um, okay, so that's not working. Apparently, we're not going to show the video, but let me go ahead and just quote what Penn said, the part that really resonated for me. Because he talks about how this man came after a show, waited until everything was done, brought him a Bible with some things written in it, and just said, hey, I'm praying for you. And although Penn was like, hey, he knows where I stand because he's not, he, he's not shy about his lack of faith, this is, these were his words. He said, if you believe that there is a heaven or hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them that because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not share your faith? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. These are the words of a man who is an avowed atheist who recognizes that if you are somebody who sees, who has tasted and seen that God is good, and you're watching your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers, your friends, going through life as if, as if they are the captains of their own ship, then you have a responsibility. Now, you cannot force your faith upon them. You cannot make them believe. And there are too many people who try to cram our faith down the throats of our family to the point where they say, I want nothing to do with you. But as a watchman, it's your responsibility to sound the alarm. And I am speaking as a watchman to my family of watchmen. And watch women. Your voice matters. Not just in a momentary thing, but in an eternal scope. It's funny how when I'm, I'm preparing a message, God often has, God often speaks directly to me. So I'm going to just share a conversation he and I had this week. Because I've tried to be really intentional throughout this whole season of writing devotionals at least one a week. Um, and I try, you know, the writer in me wants them to be nice and concise and, and packaged. Some of you would say, no, there's nothing concise about them. Sorry. But I had somebody this week who sent me an email, somebody within our church who shall remain nameless, but sent me an email that I know that they'd labored. They'd, they had struggled to write, but I'm grateful that they did. In which they said, hey, Eric, I really appreciate what, what you say and what you write, but it always seems like you come right up to the edge of the gospel. You share the gospel, but then you never take that step of helping people who may not necessarily believe to embrace the gift. And I'm, it's been on my heart for a while, but I just felt like you should know that I feel like you should be more vocal about that. 
And I'm so grateful that this person put that into words. I know it was hard for them to write it. But in a lot of ways, sometimes the watchmen have blind spots. In fact, not sometimes. Always the watchmen have blind spots. There are places where we are blind to our own bents. And for me, my bent was in order to be concise, I was kind of clipping off portions. And not every time I write something, but the assumption I was making is that I was writing to people who had already embraced the, God, the gift of grace that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And I don't want to make that assumption. I don't want to be guilty of not preaching the whole gospel. And so this morning, if there is anybody who is listening, whether in this room or, or, or via Facebook or YouTube, and you have not taken that step to say yes to Jesus, to embrace the gift of grace, then I implore you to stop holding him at arm's length. Now, I know that there's a lot of reasons why you might not. It might be because you just feel like, I don't want to relinquish control of my life. I'm happy to be in control. And simply ask, are you really? And is this the kind of life that you are wanting to lead? Or, more likely, you may be holding him at arm's length because you don't feel worthy. To which I would say, you're right. You're not. And neither am I, and neither is anyone else. And that is what makes this a gift. Because you have not earned it. You cannot earn it. The law was never put in place to give you a ladder that you could climb to, to make up for the bad decisions that you've made. You can't make enough good decisions to outweigh the bad. That's like <laughs> earlier this week, somebody gifted our family with having some, uh, a person to come by and clean our home, which was su such a gift for us. But the irony is that the day before the cleaner showed up, my wife was like busy cleaning as much as she could of the house. And I'm going, something doesn't jive here, right? You're cleaning up for the cleaner so that they won't be embarrassed about how messy the house is. Sorry, Kathy, ratted you out. But isn't that just like how we live our lives? Yeah, I sure would like to have a relationship with Jesus. And I know that he, he offers to clean me up, but I need to do some things to clean myself up before I say yes to letting him clean me up. That's missing the point. That is us trying to earn forgiveness as opposed to simply embracing the gift. So let me say to you again, you cannot earn it, but nor do you have to. You can't make Jesus love you. He loved you so much that he went to the cross for you and for me. That's how much he loves you. So you don't have to earn it. It is a gift already bought, already purchased, already offered to you. That you stop running from God, you stop trying to live for yourself, and you simply come home. And you do what you were created to do, namely, to be in relationship with your creator and to reflect his heart into this world. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat this. When you say yes to this, that doesn't make the rest of your life perfectly comfortable. It's not like the sun starts shining 24 hours a day and there's never a cloud in the sky. If Jesus is any indication, if his disciples are any indication, following Jesus means that you will experience pain in this life. 
It won't preserve you from that. It won't protect you from discomfort. But I will say that walking with him even in the midst of the storms is so much better than walking alone and hoping that someday you find him or you find purpose. So stop running. Stop trying to stumble through this life on your own. Come home. Let him clean you up. And then begin to allow him to shine through you as you become a reflection of him into this world. Imperfectly as you do it. I do it imperfectly as well, but thankfully, we don't shine on our own. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help clean us up. So to you, who have been holding Jesus at arm's length, I just simply want to invite you again today to take hold of the gift that Jesus purchased for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. And although there's nothing magical about praying a prayer, Jesus' invitation was simply follow me. And people took hold of that gift by getting up, walking away from their old life and following him. But today, while he's not here in the flesh, this is how we have tended to do it. You make a decision. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to embrace this gift. And that is the starting line to eternal life that begins the moment you say, I'm in. And then each day, you allow him to be the one who gives you direction, both from following his example, as we see in Scripture, through your prayer conversation with him, as, he, as you begin to become more in tune with the, how the Holy Spirit guides and directs you, just like the Holy Spirit directed Paul towards Jerusalem. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to allow him not just to save you, but to be the Lord of your life. So if that's you, and you're tired of holding him at arm's length, you're tired of trying to be the captain of your own ship, you're tired of trying to earn your standing with God, then simply join me in praying this prayer. Jesus, I'm tired. And I thank you that you love me. That you love me so much that you died for me. I know I don't deserve it. And yet you offer this gift freely. And so it... I receive this gift of grace freely. I invite you to come into my life to to fill me with your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised you from the dead. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would raise me from the dead, that you would bring light to my eyes and hope to my heart. Jesus, I choose to follow you, not just as my Savior, but as my Lord. Have your way with me. Jesus, I pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that, we want to celebrate with you. So please don't keep this a secret. Tell somebody in your sphere of influence, tell somebody that you know is following Jesus. And heck, tell me. Email Eric, E-R-I-C, at Lighthouse Community Church, or Jeff, J-E-F-F, pretty simple, at Lighthouse Community Church, or just both of us at Pastor at Lighthouse Community Church. Let us know so we can celebrate with you, but also so that we can make sure that you are surrounded by others who can hold you up. And if, you're, if you are within driving distance, and it's before 1230, please come to the parking lot. We want to serve you communion and pray with you.
okay? But now let's go ahead and respond to a God who loves us enough to sacrifice himself for us. Let's respond in worship.
Why don't you go ahead and stand with us where you are? We're thankful that the Lord made a way for us to be able to spend eternity with him, to walk with him in this life. So let's go ahead and sing this song together and celebrate that he is our way maker.
You never stop, never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, never stop working You never stop, never stop working You know, I am about to take my family on a three-week road trip, uh, so you're not going to see me for a little bit, and you're not going to be getting any devotions for me for a little bit, but you're going to be in really good hands. I'm excited for um, our youth pastor, Josh, uh, is going to be leading us next week. I'm really looking forward to that. And then Hefe, who normally has done about one, teaches once every five weeks, is going to take the next three weeks. So You know how he gets beat up every time he teaches. He gets three weeks in a row of that. So please be praying for him. He desperately needs it. Be praying for me as well. But before I go, I'd love to see many of you. I'd love to to just see you, be able to serve you communion, pray with you. I know Jeff wants to see you as well. So please swing by the church. Between now and 1230, we're going to be out there in the parking lot, the large parking lot. Just drive on in. If you're within walking distance, walk on in and get in line. Um, And we will see you there.